welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptation, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Now we are talking about Something Wicked This Way Comes, because it's almost Halloween, Brenna. It's almost Halloween, which, as our listeners can imagine, is a time of year I don't care anything about. <laughs> <laughs> Why gotta be such a party boop? <laughs> you know what? I like dressing up my toddler and I like eating the candy he brings home. But beyond that, I'm really not a Halloweeny person. That's fully 75% of what people <laughs> like about Halloween. But you know the part where like adults dress up and you have to be like, I don't know. A sexy costume. Like a sexy tax collector <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> or like the part... The part where you have to leave your house and, like, drive on the roads after dark, or the part where everybody is drunk. Those are the parts I don't enjoy about Halloween. This is fair. Also, as you know, I don't like being scared or thinking I might be scared. Mm-hmm. Well, this is why this property is perfect <laughs> for you, because it's spooky but not scary. I actually, I found the book creepy. Okay. I found the movie, full disclosure, dozed off several times okay yeah. well these are the perils of a 1983 disney movie isn't it and there's things too that i liked about it that i'm totally excited to talk about but i'm worried i missed some actual like plot development so we'll see how it goes, we'll see okay. how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> we're delving into an adventure <laughs> <laughs> uncertain territory and if i'm totally incoherent this week we're back to john green next week where i know what i'm talking about so it's fine <sighs> Yes. <laughs> the scariest fate of all. <laughs> That's our real Halloween episode. There Joe reads another John Green novel. I just like to say you always talk about <laughs> you always talk about how I force you to read these things that you don't want to read and I'm like this domineering person. <laughs> Let's count the John Green text that we've read. How many fingers do we need? I think this must be our third, right? Mm-hmm. But before then, we have to do homework. Do you have homework, Joe? I do. And it tracks back to our discussion that we had last week because what? I'm partially cheating. Continuity? Continuity. So last <laughs> week, we talked about our dear friend Nancy Drew. Yes. And in oh, you the interceding time, show. I watched the new bad show on the okay. CW. So I was away on a business trip this week, which meant that I was in a... Best Western in Northern British Columbia on Wednesday night. Ooh, Best Western. You're living your best life. You know what? It has a free breakfast and that's oh, all I care it. about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, <laughs> I was in the hotel room Wednesday. Like I, ne- I don't have cable and I never have a chance to watch TV. I feel like our listeners are very aware of that. Right. And so I happened to be in a hotel room by myself and I was like flipping through the channels and it was like, oh, Nancy Drew premieres tonight. And so I turned it on and I literally made it like 30 seconds before I was like, meh, would rather watch cake decorating shows. So I did that instead. Okay. So I take it back. You are living your best life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to say that you dodged a bullet, but yes. Okay. So... Listeners, full confession, we are still recording episodes in advance because this is the only way that I can survive mentally. So <laughs> we've only seen the pilot episode, which is not always and by the we, best. we, we mean Joe. This is true. So Brenna <laughs> has seen 30 seconds and I have seen the first episode. By the time this episode drops, a second episode will have aired. And maybe it was better. Who knows? 
But I can tell you unequivocally that the first episode, she was not good. <laughs> Here's how I'll know if the second episode was better. Did they turn some lights on? Because the 30 seconds I watched was like in the woods for some reason. And it looked like an outtake from Riverdale. And I turned it off. So this is 100% informed by Riverdale. The entire aesthetic. I mean, I'm sure they're shot in probably the exact same spot, but <laughs> they might as well have just said this is Nancy Drew does Riverdale because it looks exactly the same. <sighs> I mean, they also happen to air now back to back, so it makes sense. Logically, you're trying to go after the audience that has propelled, you know, it's, I think, the most successful show on the CW, so it makes sense. No. I can tell you that this iteration takes place with Nancy Drew having graduated high school. She is working a dead-end job as a waitress, and she has sworn off solving mysteries in the wake of her mother's death from cancer. So she blames her father. She's not on speaking terms with him. Her father is played by Scott Wolf in oh. yet another example of inspired adult casting on a yeah. teen show. Oh, I'm back. I didn't even see that part. I might have stuck no, around if I had No, no, don't, don't get excited because <laughs> thus far it is a thankless role. And in this iteration, Nancy is, shall we say, unlikable. Oh, good. good. So she is not only very angry with her father, but she's also... She's not even, like, quippy so much as she's dismissive and disinterested in a lot of things. She's working for, I believe it's George, runs the cafe in this mm -hmm. one. And she and George do not get along because George is a know-it-all. Mm -hmm. And then, I can't remember if Bess is actually in this. There's a, a rich socialite who is, she's basically stuck in this town because she's poor. But, of course, everyone in this show because it's Riverdale inspired has secrets <laughs> so no one is telling the truth about what they've actually been up to they're all moonlighting in other people's affairs there's a murder that takes place that will drive I thought it was just going to be this first episode but it's not it's going to drive presumably many episodes and possibly the first season for the love of god yeah, but just to give you an example of how different this show is, because we talked about the antiquated feel of Nancy mm -hmm. Drew. Mm -hmm. So in this iteration, Nancy Drew is literally introduced to having sex. I was about to ask if we see her boobs. <laughs> so, oh, Brenna, it's a CW show. We do not see her boobs. But we are introduced to her winking <laughs> Ned, whose real name is Nick, but he goes by Ned? Sure. That's Question mark? <laughs> And, you know, it's very much one of those, thanks for having sex with me, we don't talk because I don't want to actually know you, and wait, you were convicted of some kind of petty theft crime? Why what? didn't you ever tell me about it kind of deal? And you're just like, no, this show, it's basically just sexed up Nancy Drew, but this would be offensive to people who liked Nancy Drew. Have you read any reviews yet? You're big into that scene? Hmm. I have not. Um, wow, I, now I know you didn't like it because if you didn't even care enough to like see what other people were saying about no, it. No, no. And to be honest, this could just be the case of this is what they did to get the show picked up. But the aesthetic will not change because no. that's something that they will look to have a consistency through. Yeah. And like it sounds horrible to say that I hope they soften Nancy or that they make her more likable because I hate it when people say that about female characters like yeah. you can have unlikable female characters but can you have an unlikable Nancy Drew I mean it'd be kind of like saying so this is Anne of Green Gables 
but she lights fired at orphans now. Yeah, like, like, she's, like she's snarky now. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't ring true to the characters, but... Anne of Green Gables, but make her... Basically, yeah. <laughs> so I did not care for it whether this is a more appropriate modernization i mean we did talk about how the texts struggled to keep nancy sort of modern or relevant so i don't know i'm interested to see whether or not people actually respond to the show it does feel like it's nancy drew in name only and it's probably still a good fit for the cw yeah i mean yeah good fit for the cw doesn't align with quality storytelling no, so this is true <laughs> but also i feel like we've given too much airtime to something i didn't care for true. so brenna what have you got let me tell you about something great except i'm breaking my rule again because i'm only halfway through this book but this is like nah. so uh this week i'm reading there's something about sweetie by santaya menon and okay. that name sounds familiar she's got two other best-selling ya novels out from twinkle with love and when dimple met rishi Oh, wait, that one sounds familiar. When Dimple Met Rishi, yeah, I talked about it last okay. summer, I think. So that's the one that took place at a coding camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a continuation of the When Dimple Met Rishi story in a way, or I guess it's a companion novel. In When Dimple Met Rishi, Rishi's like the very sort of studious boy who always does what his parents tell him to do. And he has a younger brother named Ashish, who is not any of those things um okay. and this book follows ashish and a girl named sweetie so all of these all of sandaya menon's books take place in south asian american communities deals with different aspects of class and race and community but this book has the added layer of the fact that sweetie's fat okay and she is dealing with the fact that her mother would like her to wait for her life to start until she gets thin Ew. and so okay. What happens at the beginning of the novel is that Ashish is heartbroken after a breakup and he sort of uh, not quite willingly allows his parents to set him up on a date because he figures he's done a pretty crappy job of picking his own romance and his parents are the product of an arranged marriage and Dimple and Rishi were an arranged relationship and so he figures, okay, he'll give it a shot. And his okay. mom picks this girl, Sweetie, who's a star athlete um, and a really good student and funny and lovely and well-liked and fat cool and sweetie's mom says no maybe one day when you're thin you can date this handsome boy but not now so sweetie hatches a plan (laughs) and ashish and sweetie hatch a plan together to get to spend time together but they have to do it by ashish's parents rules which means that they set up the dates so the two of them are sort of simultaneously rebelling and conforming to parental wishes on one side or the other and it's very much about how sweetie is actually perfectly comfortable in her body it's taken her some work to get there and she talks about that backstory but in the moment we meet her she's perfectly comfortable in her body and her problem is the way her mom other treats people, her <laughs> yeah her mom especially and other members of her community um and the way she's sort of seen as less than because she's not thin right and it's really beautifully told Sendaya Menon has a really lovely opening essay where she talks about where this came from and her desire to write about body positivity specifically within the South Asian community and the need for fat positivity and to talk about fat bodies as bodies and not as sort of people in waiting which is the way Sweetie's mom treats her right 
and it's funny and the love story is super cute and I don't know where it goes yet because I'm only halfway through but I've loved everything else Sandia Menon has written so I'm guessing it's going to be great mm-hmm. uh, yeah so that's There's Something About Sweetie by Sandia Menon okay so follow-up question yeah do people need to have read the other book to get a good understanding or can they just jump into this one I think you can just jump in with this one. So they're companion stories and there's like occasional references to Dimple and Rishi's relationship and how it has progressed since the last novel, but it's it's background noise to the central story. I suspect if you read this, you would then want to go back and read When Dimple Met Rishi, but it's not necessary, I don't think. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's in fact, helpful. I didn't even know they were related when I picked them up, so uh-huh. when I picked it up, so okay. yeah. Well, that sounds lovely. It is delightful and very funny. Which is not what Something Wicked This Way Comes is, but it is a book that I read and my first Ray Bradbury. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Something Wicked This Way Comes is a 1962 dark fairy tale written, as you said, Brenna, by Ray Bradbury. And I feel like people know him a little bit more (laughs) for his more seminal adult text, Fahrenheit 451. You think? You think that's what people know Ray Bradbury for? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in general, people know Ray Bradbury as a science fiction writer, right? Mm-hmm. The Martian Chronicles, Icing the Body Electric. Like, if you're into speculative fiction, you probably know Ray Bradbury. Yes. Yeah. So um, I guess I shall give a plot summary, Joe. Go ahead. Okay. So the book is about two best friends, Will and Jim. Will has a mom and a dad and his mom and dad seem quite happy together but there's this kind of hang up around the fact that Will's dad was like old when Will was born so yeah. I guess Will's about 10 and his dad is no sorry they're 14 the boys are 14 yeah so um Will and Jim are 14 and Will's dad is 54 so it's not like he's like it's not like he's Hugh Hefner or anything he's just... no this was one of those things where I thought is this a 62 thing mm-hmm. that modern audiences may not completely understand but yeah there's a lot of issues that Will's dad Charles has around his age and so they have this strained relationship because his Dad is so caught up in the idea that he isn't young enough to like be an active and fun dad that he mm-hmm. is not an active or fun dad. <laughs> yeah. He pieces out regularly because yeah. he can't be an active and fun dad. Yeah, it's an interesting angle to take. Jim, on the other hand, uh, lives with his mom, who's deeply and weirdly codependent with him because his yes, dad and siblings are all dead. And so where Will's hangups are all around trying to develop and create a connection with his dad, and the text spends an awful lot of time there. Sure does. Jim's issues are related to this idea of not wanting to ever be in the position his mother is in. So he doesn't ever want to love anyone. He doesn't ever want to have a family. He doesn't ever want to open himself up to heartbreak. They're kind of heady ideas they to are. put into a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> they are. And especially because I think Jim gets short shrift in the novel. Like, Oh, for sure. This is Will's story. It's Will's story. And it's Will's dad's story. Yeah, which I didn't know. And it's all about that. It's about, I don't know, masculine anxiety and fatherhood mm-hmm. and how to prove yourself to your father. And yep. meanwhile, there's Jim over here who's like spinning out of control and thinks he's deeply unlovable because his most of his family is dead mm-hmm. and we don't ever really talk about that no. <laughs> which is an interesting choice so it's october it's sort of a dark and dank and dusty day and the boys find out that a carnival is coming to town it's going to start the next day 
Yes, but this is very odd because carnivals don't, don't typically come, come at this town. And they certainly don't come into town at 3 a.m. No, and so this is the thing. So they get this flyer, they find this flyer flying in the street. Will's dad finds one and hides it, burns it, tries to sort of ignore that this is happening because he has a bad feeling about the carnival. Also, fun, no. <laughs> I can't have fun, I'm 54, which seems I'm to be so a weird old. recurring I need to theme. go back to the library. Which I thought he was a librarian until like the I last... I thought so too. <laughs> So he seems like a librarian. He's always in the library. Mm-hmm. He's always working with the books. And then at the end of the book, they're like, and he was just a janitor. Just and a I was janitor. Like, what? Yep. Why is he always just hanging out? I actually thought that he was just actively, like, I spent a, a good portion of the first part of this book thinking that he was either preparing to step out on the family yeah. or that he just didn't enjoy fatherhood and yes. that he was just constantly looking for opportunities to get away from them. Yes. And then I thought he was librarianing because it's like one in the morning and he's in the library shelving books. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, it's like, well, I guess I feel bad about myself because I never became more than a janitor. And I was like, wait, I thought you were the librarian. And also, what's wrong with being the janitor? And I'm very confused. This book has taken an odd turn. Indeed. (laughs) So that's the end. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The end. So at three in the morning, this train rolls into town. It's got the carnival. Obviously, a book called Something Wicked This Way comes with a 3 a.m. train. What's going to be on the train is not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And the carnival has a bunch of creepy things. There's a mirror maze that shows you the version of yourself you most want to be. There's a carousel, <laughs> but you can get lost in your reflection and stay there forever, and it becomes like a wax museum of people. There's a carousel that goes backwards to um, make you younger and forwards to make you older. There's a bunch of there's like all kinds of. Um, dehumanizing language for the people who are referred to as the freaks in the carnival yep and in fact in general the book is very 1962 in the way it uses yes quote-unquote indians and quote-unquote chinamen and these Mm -hmm. kinds of references and like quote-unquote arabs as ways of sort of denoting not just exoticism but something to be frightened of it's very jarring for a contemporary reader It's very, yeah, set in the heartlands of white America. Yes, and deeply uncritical of it, which I was surprised. Based on Ray Bradbury's reputation, I was surprised by that, but that might be my personal misunderstanding of his body work. I'm not sure. I feel like what he's been acknowledged for is his political criticisms, Mm -hmm. like his sociocultural stuff, but Mm -hmm. not... I don't know about his issues with both sex and race. Right. So the kinds of creepy things that happen at the carnival, there's the carnival barker, Mr. Cougar, turns himself into a little boy on the... Carousel. Carousel, and then tricks Miss Foley into um, seeking eternal youth. And the monkey's paw situation is that she gets eternal youth, but her vision, her sight is taken from her as a result. Oh, I don't know. There's just a whole bunch of stuff. They put Mr. Cougar back on the carousel and he ages 100 years and becomes like this creepy mummified corpse. Mm-hmm. They bring in the police, but the police don't yes. believe them because, of course, the carnival is very good at covering its own tracks Yes. Up. And, I mean, carnivals look creepy because 
that's what's fun about them, right? Like, th- there's yeah. an element of, like, what what are you expecting it to be like, boy? Like, of course, there's a man covered in tattoos who pretends that his tattoos can talk to you. Yeah. The boys are like, but he's not pretending. Right. And it does <laughs> set in motion a chain of events where, because the boys have more or less outed themselves as the yes. people who... They have the potential to thwart the plans of the carnival because the carnival basically survives on the youth and the energy of the souls of the people that it affects when it travels into town. And you kind of get trapped into participating because the carousel makes you young again. You feel so grateful you want to make all the people you know young again. But the only way to keep the carousel keeping people young is to keep sort of feeding it bodies. Mm -hmm. So there's a great moment in the book, probably my favorite moment in the whole book, when the boys confess what's been going on with the carnival or explain what's been going on with the carnival to Will's father. And Will's father believes them. And it's a really kind of... It's just nice. It's just a nice moment. And it's also... Yeah, it's just a nice moment. Uh, and then from there, his father helps them to try to get rid of the carnival and, and rescue Jim, who gets himself into that hall of mirrors and doesn't want to leave. Uh, and so uh, it turns out that the way you resist the carnival is to A, resist its promises. So Will's father, even though he has all these hangups about his age, he resists the opportunity to make himself younger, which is sort of his moment of great strength. He has a strength of character, Brenna. Uh-huh. And then also for reasons that never were clear to me, laughing at the carnival makes it go away. I think it's the idea, of, kind of as you suggested, there's something uncanny about a carnival that plays on people's fears and uh, secret desires. So I guess Bradbury propositions that the opposite reaction to that would be to laugh and make fun of it. Right. And also laughing brings you back from being dead. So that's how they rescue Jim and then the book is over. Yeah, more or less with the <laughs> with the two children and then the man child skipping back to town as everything is perfectly fine and everyone is yeah. I did dislike it. It's not a book for me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't dislike it. I think it's well crafted in a lot of ways. And as I say, I genuinely really enjoyed that scene where they spill their guts to Will's dad and he has this moment where he's like, Yeah, I believe you. And I was like, wow, that almost never happens in these books. This That's is nice. True. Um, I thought I had a couple of really fun, interesting sequences. But overall, considering that this book is under 300 pages, there were a couple of different times where it feels draggy. like a bit of a slog. Yeah. Yeah, there's really long descriptive passages that aren't, don't always have a lot of payoff. Like the ones about the witches, those are great. But there's some where it's like, oh, we've been describing this field for quite some time. And then you get to the end of it and you're like, well, but... Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not... It's not creepy. It's just a field. Um, so there was there were moments like that. And I think that's just... I think our expectations of pacing change over time. Yes. And this book is a good representation of that. Yeah. But overall, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward allegory for both good versus evil, right? Yes. And what it means to resist evil. And also for kind of a coming of age and I'm thinking both in terms of the boys sort of discovering like Jim learns that actually the thing that helps you survive is caring about people and people caring about you yeah Will learns that his father is a human being with failings but who actually does love him but also Will's dad learns that he's basically wasted 14 years with his son being hung up about the fact that being an old dad is no fun yeah when he could have just been being fun exactly <laughs> yeah the the cultural admonition is yeah. be fun because yeah. life is short be fun because life is short and that person who you think is a witch probably is 
Indeed, yeah. yeah. And basically, don't go to the carnival. <laughs> don't go to the carnival. I didn't want to in the first place. I really didn't after this book. Yeah. Also, carnivals that start in the middle of the night, I feel like that's not a good idea. It's a pretty obvious warning sign. Hey, folks of this small town, we know that you're maybe not as savvy as big city folks, but, you know, use your best judgment here. Also, even if you don't believe in the supernatural, that means that all of those bolts were tightened in the dark. Mm hmm. Bad idea. Yeah, don't get on that Ferris wheel. Mm mm. Nope. <laughs> so okay what is there to talk about i feel like we can talk about the way that bradbury writes which we've hinted at can sometimes be a little bit meandering but it yeah. could also just be that we're not attuned to his style but i'm not sure if the right word is lyrical but it felt like it had a musical quality to it yes and specifically carnival music specifically the kind of lilt and tilt of carnival music was like in my head the whole time I was reading those carnival scenes and I don't mm -hmm. know why because I went back and looked at some of the scenes and I was like does he ever describe and he doesn't I don't not the music no it's just the way he's composed the text which is pretty brilliant really yeah so in that scene that you talked about where they confess everything to Will's dad I was really taken with the lengthy descriptive passages that he responds to about his history yeah. and the way that he talks about himself and his place in the world I thought that was a great example of that lyricism intertwining with still doing really good character work and moving the plot forward by providing some nuance totally agree that and I think there's a, a significant action scene where when the boys thwart Mr. Dark is the antagonist and he has a subservient woman that he basically employs to go out and do all of his dirty work that they call the dust witch <laughs> and she travels around in a black hot air balloon and at one point she tries to mark jim's house so that the carnival people can find them because of course they're constantly on the hunt for these boys and I liked the action scene where Will ends up having to shoot the bone arrow to puncture her hot air balloon. And at the time, he thinks he kills her. But that felt very unique and just kind of deeply fascinating because it's inherently cinematic. Yeah, that's true. Despite the fact it doesn't show up in the film. <laughs> but I liked it as a very uncanny, unexpected kind of action scenario. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. And I think just in general, it sounds like a contradiction to what I was saying before, because I think the pacing is not amazing no. consistently, but the pacing of those scenes where the boys are in peril is really well done. Yes. Yeah. I don't know, Joe. I feel like I don't have a ton to say about this, and it's partially my ignorance. Like, I can't offer any context. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I just feel like I read it, and I didn't mind it, and um, I don't know. Okay, so I've been having a lot of conversations on my other podcast, Horror Queers, because we've covered a number of different Stephen King books and film adaptations in the last little while, because we're very much living in the age of Stephen King right now. Sure. And intriguingly enough, Something Wicked This Way Comes has been ear noted, earmarked, earmarked. I like ear note. Let's take, let's start doing ear note. <laughs> it's where you take a text of note and you stick it into your <laughs> ear and it goes into your brain. Oh my God. That'd be so efficient. Right? Oh, wow. 
So apparently Stephen King is a fan of this book. I could see a lot of narrative connections to his book, Needful Things, which is about a creepy shop that opens up and grants everyone's secret desires. Oh, yeah. And that's been done and redone Mm -hmm. in various contexts. I feel like I've seen like a Sabrina the Teenage Witch episode that was about that. Oh, yeah. It's a very common sort of, I mean, as you suggested, it's a bit of a monkey's paw situation, right? Where part of this book, I think, is also warning people you need to be happy with the life that you've lived or created for yourself even if it's not what you expected right because we get all of these little side passages about people who their dreams didn't come true and they've kind of gotten trapped in their day-to-day life as a shopkeep or a barber or a school teacher and it's when they indulge in fantasy that they lose their way right that's what the carnival plays on right Dark's power is his ability to hypnotize these people by saying, hey, don't you wish your life was different? Which is something that, you know, is very relatable. So I do think that one of the things that we should touch on is you provided a very modern reading of this book that I don't think Ray Bradbury would have ever intended when he wrote it back in the 60s. So Brenna, you texted me that you (laughs) thought that there was a queer reading between Jim and Will. Well, okay, so I think I alluded... No, I didn't. I just talked about Jim and his mom. Jim and Will's relationship is quite codependent. Yes, so they are neighbors, which doesn't hurt. And they were born two (laughs) days apart. They have this profound and lifelong friendship. They're neighbors born two days apart, or actually Mm -hmm. not even two days, right? No, I think it's one is before midnight and one is shortly after. And one is after midnight by an hour. It's very symmetrical, whatever it is. Yes, and Jim, of course, who is the dark-haired boy who is born after midnight, has the last name Nightshade, just in case you couldn't pick it up. It's not what you'd call your subtle. No. But yeah, so... It's really interesting because, yes, they're just friends. They're too young to have sexuality. For I mean, they're not. They're 14. But they're within the context of the novel. There's no suggestion that they have any understanding of sexuality or attraction. Which I kept expecting, like, with the night or with the dust witch I thought yeah. because everyone talks about how she's you know this beauty who can mesmerize people but there's never an indication that the boys are even remotely interested and in because the dad keeps talking about the only thing men have in common is that they all like women's and <laughs> <laughs> then the barber is like there's a carnival coming to town do you think they're bringing women like <laughs> I know it's like is this a town populated by just desperate thirsty men some of it is a little distressing gosh i hope they bring women to town (laughs) it's been so long since i felt the touch of a woman no woman in town will go near you then you need to think about things yeah maybe it's you maybe (laughs) maybe it's you barber um (laughs) the way bradbury writes the two boys so jim simultaneously does not want to ever experience love or relationships and at the same time, deeply needs Will. Will, on the but other hand... But he needs Will to follow him. Yes, he needs Will like, to follow him, He yeah. wants to be in charge, and he needs the complacency that Will brings to their relationship. Well, because what Will desperately needs is someone cool to follow, because his dad is not around, right? And so for yeah. Will, it's this idea of like, well, if my dad won't even look me in the eye, because apparently him being old means that I can't have a father, um, <laughs> I might as well follow Jim around. So they both need each other profoundly. I texted Joe because there's this part where 
Jim thinks that Will's going to leave him behind at the carnival or he won't go mm-hmm. with him to the carnival or something. And then they have this moment where Bradbury's like, and they said to each other breathlessly, like, please always be there with me. I will. I'll always be there with you. And then they like. Now you are reading that <laughs> with a tone, <laughs> miss. He literally says with, Jim, with breath. don't leave me breathlessly. <laughs> He literally says, Bradbury literally writes, that it's like this breathy intonement. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just interesting. I think it's less about the fact that like, these two boys are definitely gay because they like gay stuff. But I think it's it's more how even Bradbury, who clearly only writes men in this book, like he has no interest. So much. This is such a masculine book. Yeah. And like Miss Foley. Miss Foley used to be hot and she wants to still be hot. And that's her entire character arc. Yeah, that's her literal entire character arc. She's so vain, she'll give up her sight to be hot. Ugh, woman. (laughs) And then the moms are completely one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, heteronormativity being what it is, he also can't actually convincingly write a male friendship that doesn't rely on tropes of heteronormativity does that make sense like the very few moments that we have any kind of intimacy between will and jim it's so pleading and desperate and like i don't know it feels really really like the way you would describe a romantic relationship yeah that is equally troubled (laughs) by the way i know i i mocked you gently (laughs) when you suggested it to me because Part of what can sometimes be damaging about contemporary readings of male friendships in which we recast them or look for signs of homosexuality is that it does diminish the concept of male friendships. Yes, which is deeply problematic in the way our culture talks about maleness and masculinity. Totally. Yeah, because we're we're afraid of men having an intimacy that is not sexual. I think what I'm what I was looking for in this book was something more interesting about these two boys. Oh yeah, no, these boys are <laughs> like super okay. Boring. What if they're queer? <laughs> like, that would right? be more interesting. Oh, I'm such a straight white lady right now. <laughs> I mean, get back into that wine and talk to me about. <laughs> No, but you are absolutely right, because one of the things that I struggled with in this book is it's not just that it's not subtle, it's that everything does feel very surface level, Mm -hmm. which surprised me because I find Fahrenheit 451 to be a deeply nuanced and multi-layered book, except for in relationship to the protagonist's wife, who I just think is such a fascinating character and is basically like, wife is crazy. (laughs) She spend money. It's a very Neanderthal perspective of women. Maybe Ray Bradbury didn't like women. I definitely don't think that he thought they had personalities based on his execution in this novel. Yeah. But particularly in this book, there's something lacking. Like the characters have problems, but they don't have depth. So in this case, it's boys who have a very tight relationship. Like it's very clear that they don't have anyone else in their lives. But... At the same time, that's also the only thing that they have. So everything about the book is, Jim, don't leave me. Will, we've got to go out. Like, there's so much time and energy dedicated to Will wakes up, Jim wakes up. One of them goes outside and throws rocks at the other's window to say, like, let's begin the day. And it's such a codependent relationship. Well, to the point that they dream together, right? Like, in their separate houses, they have the same dream slash nightmare. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like you. I'm almost at a loss of words because 
it's presented so uncritically. It's mm-hmm. as though, you know, oh, the bonds of friendship between these two boys is the most important thing. It's almost sacrilegious to suggest that Jim might leave Will. And that's why the entire climax of the book is about saving Jim's life and getting him away from Mr. Dark before he can be polluted. Well, and the flip side to that, too, is like... Which also, the idea of like an older man being like, hey, you can be my new protege. There's some iffy connotations in there. Yes, definitely. And I think it's almost like Bradbury doesn't know that what is most interesting is not... How do I put this? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like, he's like, look at this friendship that is so fulfilling to both these boys. And uh, maybe it's because I'm a mom. I don't know. But I'm like, wow, what is going on with these boys that this is the only fulfilling relationship in their lives? A little bit. Yeah. Right? I do think that there's a certain condemnation about small town America oh, as yeah. well. Yeah. Their willingness to be complicit in these activities you know there's a historical record of this carnival coming back to town every 20 years (laughs) they're not just rubes right like it's not just about the small town rube it's about and this is actually pretty interesting because it's the reverse of what we usually see in american literature but here it's the small town as as morally corrupt right like these people are all willing to sell components of Mm themselves for personal gain yeah with little thought to how it impacts the rest of the society which is typically the narrative associated with the city in american writing right yeah yeah and to be honest it feels like no one in this town has connections to other people like they're all living their own lives and completely unaware of what's happening to other people part of that i think is because bradbury doesn't seem very interested in the actual lives of these people so like we know the book we know the barber is thirsty Mm -hmm. we know the guy who owns the cigar store is greedy yes we know miss foley is vain we thought we knew that Charles was a librarian. He's not. But like, <laughs> you, you get you get so little. And it's interesting because this is often a critique of genre fiction that I find typically an unfair critique, that there's lack of interest in characterization in favor of the sensation. Right. But here, it's we are just here for the sensation. And arguably, I would say it's less of the sensation and more about the morality message. Yes, I would. Okay, that's fair. Like this book feels like a but message. But by the same token, would the morality message not be more effective if these were real people? Maybe. I don't know. Is this is this the difference between 1962 and, yeah. you know. It's true. I mean, it's just, it's such an apparent allegory and it's almost like to talk about it as anything else is sort of pointless, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I think unless you want to say something else, we maybe move on. I literally just want to share a piece of trivia with you that I think you'll find interesting. Okay, hit me. R.L. Stein. <gasps> yes. Says that this is the scariest book he's ever read in his life. Uh, hmm. Mo on that while we listen to the trailer. <laughs> Hellfire storms are coming. An electric storm to clean your streets and wash away your troubles. For every heart, there exists a wish. You ever play the numbers, Mr. Holloway? Hey. Never take risks. For every soul, there burns a desire. Oh, he's up. Always was. It smells to me like we're going to have visitors. But never whisper your dreams, for someone might be listening. And for every wish, there will be a price. 
for every desire, there will be a cost. Three o'clock. They call it the soul's midnight. Okay, so we're back, and I feel like... You know how we've had a couple of conversations, well, specifically last week about Nancy Drew, but I wonder if it's like, if you are a person of a certain age, yeah. this would ring more authentically true to you. The film? So, the film. Because, <laughs> no, I, well, I'm specifically asking about the film because I actually think the film, and yet you are the film expert on this podcast, so feel free to critique or challenge me here. Okay. I was saying last night, I was watching it with Dev before I dozed off for the first time. <laughs> That it looks like a much older film than it is. The sets look very old timey. The Mm -hmm. backgrounds look very, it looks like something out of like golden age of Hollywood at moments when you see like the storm coming across the horizon and stuff. And Dev was like, well, maybe it was just super low budget. And maybe because it's a Disney kids movie from before those live action Disney movies were like. This is true. But I wonder if there's uh, actually an intentional artifice to the way the film looks. There's definitely a couple of points where I would 100% agree with you. And then I think a couple of other points where I would agree with Dev. So thinking about the way that the twister looks in the climax when the entire carnival gets swept up into the sky and is just magically erased, that I think just suffers from some less than convincing practical effects, or sorry, computer generated effects that at the time were probably fine. But yeah, this is very clearly a Disney film from 1983 that was made in a time when they probably weren't growing a ton of money at the screen. Yeah. I'll give Dev a shout out. He noticed this is the same film lot where they shot The Burbs and Desperate Housewives. Oh, okay. (laughs) Things I would not have noticed. (laughs) Right. So as I mentioned briefly, the film is from 1983. It's directed by Jack Clayton and it was adapted by Bradbury himself. Oh, He supervised the translation from book to film. Okay, that surprises me. It does and it doesn't. Apparently he did become involved in a number of different film and television works. No, I just mean in this case it surprises me because there were so many things that felt... Like to me what is pleasurable about the book is the subtlety. Uh, Okay. (laughs) And the film is not subtle. (sighs) No, the film lays it pretty thick. Yeah. Well, also being threadbare, if that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I dozed off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so people of note in the film, Jonathan Price is Mr. Dark. At the time, he was not a well-known person, and now he's gone on to become quite a popular character actor. I will always remember him from his turn as a Bond villain. So he oh. was in Tomorrow Never Dies, which is the Bond film with Terry Hatcher. And it's all about corrupting the media, which is not at all relevant anymore. <laughs> uh, and Jason Robarts is Charles Holloway. He did a lot of television as well as uh, a fairly prolific film career. I definitely thought he was from Pet Cemetery, but that's not him, so... <laughs> and then the other person that I thought was interesting is uh, the Dust Witch is played by Pam Grier. So she's really the, the only significant person of color in this entire white, 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 white vehicle. Yes, true. But of course, she has virtually no dialogue, if any dialogue. And she basically is meant to just show up and be a gorgeous apparition. Yes. And her face spends at least part of the time made up as a skull anyway. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I loved, I just loved, Joe, we are almost a year into doing this together, and you yes. still went, and uh, The Dust Witch is played by Pam Greer. And you definitely, like, you expected me to know who you were talking about. Because it's Pam Greer, Brenna. Just very charmed by the fact. It's Foxy Brown herself. <laughs> like, literally one of the most important African-American actresses in history. Pam Greer, Brenna. Your faith in my competency never <laughs> ceases to charm me. That's all I'm saying. Sure, but let's talk about the 12 different iterations of Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> Listen, you haven't even let me do that on the show yet, so... Brenna. I'm not airing our dirty laundry on the air with you again. <laughs> Listeners love it. Write into hashtag HKHSPod if you love it when we yell at each other on the air. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so a couple of significant pieces of note. So as I mentioned, there is a significant action sequence in the book involving the Dust Witch and her uh, hot air balloon, which is absent from the film. There's a more significant play in the Maze of Mirrors in the climax that uh, really doubles down on Charles Holloway's attempts to unpack his age, and it's, it's very bombastic. The climax where Jim is more or less put in peril is altered so that he basically just gets thrown off the carousel, and then it drags Mr. Dark to his death by aging him significantly. Yeah. Uh, the dust witch in this is not killed by Charles Holloway with a bullet with a smile on it, which I think is probably the smartest choice that the film makes because that... It requires a lot of explanation. It requires a lot of explanation, but it's also deeply uncomfortable with the kind of glee that Charles Holloway has in the book about shooting a woman in yeah. front of an entire audience of men. Yeah. I was deeply uncomfortable with it. It's like, also, the other thing that's weird about that scene in the book is like, this is just an audience of townspeople, mm -hmm. not all of whom know the carnival is evil. They think it's a spectacle. They they don't think that she's going to be hurt. But at the same time, when she is hurt, everybody's kind of like, like, great oh, show. Good work, everyone. It's, <laughs> yeah. I found that scene so profoundly. I kept flipping back to see. I was like, oh, Did I, I missed miss something <laughs> where the carnival has been unveiled as, as evil. Oh, yeah. no, I didn't. No, it's just no. a... These are just weirdos. Like, literally no one ever figures out, figures out that the carnival is evil. It's yeah. just the three of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the other significant piece, so actually the part of the film that I enjoyed the absolute most is the sequence in the library when Mr. Dark is trying to uncover the identity of the two boys and he accosts Charles Holloway. Yes. Who, P.S., is absolutely a librarian in the film, right? We agree? I took it as so, yes. <laughs> we never see him do any kind of janitorial work. Never, and never in the book either. No. Ugh. It's just that one paragraph at the end, which I literally have one of those reading whiplash moments. Yeah, it's such a weird, arbitrary decision, but maybe it makes more sense that it's like, oh, I'm old and I don't have a good job. I guess, yes, janitorial work is still valid and it's essential. Well, and especially, it's not like, I mean, it's a town entirely made up of working class people jobs mm -hmm. like the only jobs we hear about are working class jobs so the idea that he would feel down about himself about it it's just so weirdly tacked on it's at the end yeah. it's like were you writing this in a library and a janitor said something mean to you like <laughs> <laughs> oh this where, is payback where did this come from <laughs> no i think to be honest it's a bit of classism Mm -hmm. on Bradbury's part mm -hmm. where he's just like well, what could be the worst job in the world sanitation 
And we're just supposed to take that shorthand and be like, oh, yeah, no, I totally get what he's saying. To the point where he hides the boys in a sewer that's oh, yeah. filled with refuse and having, yeah. like, people drop stuff on them. Yep. And still in that scene does not mention that he's a janitor. No. <laughs> like, I, anyway, whatever. It's just very odd. It's a strange little tacked on component at the end of the mm-hmm. text. And it's it's so deeply confusing that I may be <laughs> the thing I remember most about the book. I love that we're so fixated on it. Because <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> Literally no mention until like the last paragraph. No. But no. So in the film, that was actually my very favorite scene in the entire film is Mr. Dark trying to seduce Charles Holloway into giving yes. up the identity of the boys by offering him not quite eternal life, but allowing him to rewind the clock and tearing the pages out of the book. And I the way he it. says it too is he's like, oh, you could go back to... 35 when you maybe should have become a father and he's like Mm -hmm. like going and he goes like year by year milestone by milestone in a way that's much more effective than yeah than promising him eternal youth because it's not that eternal youth is not what would be tempting to charles what would be tempting to charles is a redo on the life he's already had yeah and in the book it's surprisingly brief so i had i actually watched the film first and then finished up the book so I got to watch the film version of it and was really satisfied with the way it plays out Mm. I mean a I love Jonathan Price I think he's such an amazing actor and this part is where the film actually gives him the most to do so just watching him antagonize and and just rip out those pages with gusto and I felt like the controlled use of special effects so every time he rips out a page it has a glow on the seam where he rips Mm -hmm. it so Mm -hmm. it has that kind of magical property like this is your year it could have been this one but no now it's gone it's like almost up in flames yeah and then to go back and read it in the book it's do you want to be 35 no okay that's gone where are the boys (laughs) dust witch it's also weird it's a weird negotiation in that scene too because like do you want to be 35 no Okay, where are the boys? Oh, you're not going to tell me? Well, do you want to be 40? No. Like, he's almost, like, (laughs) negotiating in the wrong direction. It's very odd. Yeah. What if I still made you younger, but it was five years less? Like, no, that is not the right way. You should be saying, what if I made you 80? What if I made you 100? Yeah, it's... Yeah. You're trying to threaten this person with death or pain and dismemberment. I will say, however, I did enjoy the fact that Charles gets his hand entirely crushed in the book. Yes. Whereas in the film, it definitely feels like, no, our audience are children. And (laughs) the most we can do is make it look like a hearty handshake that he then wraps up. I think what I like about it in the book is that that is what allows it to be this moment of sacrifice for Charles. For Charles. And that is what sort of reinforces his actual feelings there's a line in the book where it's like, oh, well, all fathers have to learn to love their kids. Mm-hmm. And it's something you get told a lot. And you actually get told that at prenatal class, incidentally. Makes like, sense. Women will love their babies immediately, but dads need time. Yeah, it's also kind of damaging, though, because women don't always love their babies immediately. And that so is true. Mm, yeah. There's a whole thing around that. So anyway, it doesn't matter. But this line, it's like, I don't think it's supposed to take you 14 years to, <laughs> to learn no. to love your kids but in that moment he has had this this sacrifice that has crystallized his actual feelings for his son and made him recognize that his regret is not in sort of like quote unquote being old but as we talked about wasting the time that he did have Mm -hmm. yeah 
So I'm curious, what did you think about the climax in the Hall of Mirrors? Because I'll confess mm. that the way that it's visually represented mm. as a bit of a funhouse, I liked because I struggled to visualize it when I was reading it. But I didn't love the extended like banging on the glass and reaching through and saving Will pulling him out of a river? Question mark. Yeah, and I didn't like the way it glowed. It made it look like like a portal, which I don't think is what it is. Like in the book, the idea is that you go into the Hall of Mirrors, you see the thing you want most for yourself, and it's so seductive that you stay. Mm -hmm. And you slowly kind of become like this wax figure. In the book, there's this idea that someone has drowned in the Hall of Mirrors, but it's, I thought, metaphorical. (laughs) Not literal. (laughs) And so in the book, they're like, they make it very literal, which is, or in the film, they make it very literal, which I think is a failing of the film as a whole. Yeah, it doesn't I don't quite think trust it its audience. That's what I was going to say. I don't think it trusts its youth audience to be able to understand metaphor and allegory, mm-hmm. which is what the book trades in, which is why I think it's so weird that Bradbury actually wrote it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for me, too on the nose, too specific. And we lose some of that. Like what's what's creepy about the Hall of Mirrors for me in the book is this idea that there's this moment where Jim and Will, when they both have their Hall of Mirrors moments, they believe they are resisting it right right they believe that they're saying no but there's something deeper within them that is being seduced yes you lose all of that when you turn it into like a literal portal to another place well and particularly when you have to somehow visually dramatize it so what you end up with is somebody banging on glass like this is how i show no i'm really conflicted about this Yeah. yeah yeah you could make the argument that it's more cinematic but i think it's also less effective I think the film also, I mean, so we've talked about the sort of casual racism of the book and the sort of temporal, yes, just kind of flippant use of people's identities as like metaphorical markers that the film does or that mm-hmm. the book does. Yes. And the film trades in some of that. We have the cigar store, quote unquote, wooden Indian and stuff as yep. images of the exotic, etc. But I think the film actually trades more significantly in ableism than does the book and i'm thinking particularly of the barkeep yeah so the barkeep has lost a leg and an arm and i believe the insinuation is meant to be that he lost it in the war i think so that he would have been a great athlete but he went off to war and he lost his arm and leg and so he's from the beginning of the film he's a deeply tragic figure right like he goes everywhere with a football under his arm Mm -hmm. and he's he's sort of jovial and pleasant to everyone he encounters but he is almost a figure of pity, yeah. right? In the way he's constantly represented. And then, of course, his great desire is framed. When he stands in the Hall of Mirrors, what he sees is his leg and his arm intact again. Yes. And it's an interesting choice, right? Because his greatest desire... Is to be whole. Quote is unquote. to be quote unquote whole, as opposed to like, it doesn't show him with his arm and his leg, but also the athletic superstar that he dreamed of being, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it stops one step before actually allowing him to fulfill the dream as though the dream of uh, having his body back in its entirety would be enough. Yeah. Which is very odd if you think about, you know, the way that the magical mirror in Harry Potter yes! gets framed, right? Yes, but it's also weird in the context of this book where it's like, 
I don't know. It, I, I guess it has to do with the, sh- the shallowness of how these dreams are articulated. But yes. there's so much complexity in the way Charles is not just after eternal youth, but this specific option to rewind and to try again. Mm-hmm. And it has so much emotional nuance and so much emotional resonance. And then it's like, oh, well, the disabled guy just wants to be abled. Well, and... Without any context. And I think that that follows through with all of the other desires from the secondary characters who we Mm -hmm. really, again, do not know all that much about. No. You know, because I had a feeling that you were going to bring this up, but I feel... And maybe this is me reaching, or maybe this is me giving the text more credit than it deserves. I did feel like part of it is actually Bradbury's critique in both book and film about the shallowness of these people that their dreams and aspirations are so one-dimensional like I just want to be pretty again I agree really that's all you want you don't want a million dollars you don't want world peace you don't want to like get out of this small one-horse town no not one single person makes a makes a wish or has an aspiration that is of benefit to anyone but themselves right it's entirely exactly yeah and so I agree with you or uh maybe more precisely I don't disagree with you um but I think that Maybe the disappointment for me in both the book, but more acutely in the film, is that that critique is not well fleshed out. And so as a result, it's more like, look at these rural rubes, as opposed to like a thoughtful critique of American society, which, Mm -hmm. again, I think there are all the pieces in place for it to do that. Like, I just I think even the very fact that he chooses to have the corrupted people being rural small town people is in and of itself a social critique mm-hmm. i just wanted him to do it more or right. push it further or or be more assertive yeah and the film i think it all gets lost in favor of check out these spiders <laughs> okay the spider sequence is great it was and i was fine with it because you texted me and you're like how are you with spiders and i'm actually fine with spiders spiders are not an issue okay but by the same token i felt like all of the energy of the film was put into scenes like that yes at the cost of any kind of sense of development of these characters. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Neither of these two texts are really interested in the characters, which no. I think, again, contributed to the reason why we feel like maybe it was a bit meandering, maybe it was a bit of a slog, is just it's because there's no one to really latch onto, and particularly yeah. in the film, because these kids are boring. Oh, they're so boring. I feel bad for saying this about child actors. I don't. But these kids are not so engaging boring. performers. So this is not the story of Will and Jim in the film. This is 100% the story of Charles Holloway. I noticed neither one of the child actors has a Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah, no. That's why I didn't even mention them because I'm like, <laughs> no one knows who these people are because they amounted to nothing. I do want to come back quickly. Well, I appreciate your critique of the depiction of ableism or the the sort of reinforcement that like <laughs> the dream of people who are disabled is simply to be whole. Mm-hmm. That's offensive. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that I felt like one of the best uncanny moments in the film is when Charles Holloway sees Ned, the barkeep, in the street and... He's not just whole, in quotation marks, because he's got his arm and his leg back, but that he's young. And it was yes. kind of deliciously creepy because there's a suggestion in the book that people almost lose their mind when they get de-aged or when they yes. get what they want. Like, they become a bit somnambulous. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea that you can see this child actor, better child actor. Yeah, way better. He he really conveys this idea that he is aware of what's happening, but also that he's a bit 
messed up. He's kind of deliciously creepy in the way that he's like, here, catch this ball. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I like that, but not all the other stuff. And then, crap, what was the other piece I was going to say? Um, nope, it's gone. No, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that, that's what it was. The end of the film really disappointed me. So there's, we talked about a number of the different changes. I actually really liked the visual of Mr. Dark getting dragged and getting de-aged with the blue electricity. You know, it's very of the time back in 83. We're talking like Return of the Jedi and the Emperor with his electric fingers. One thing that really deeply disappointed me is this idea that in the film, all of the people who have been affected just get turned back into their regular selves. Whereas in the book, the change is permanent. Yes. The people remain wax statues. They are not just simply returned to their everyday life. Which works, I mean, that's a more effective moral lesson, right? Mm -hmm. If if this is an allegory and a morality story. Like, there's actually no consequences for anyone in the film. No, well, and this is a a Disney ending, right? Yeah, It's the happily ever after. Up to the point, like, I I really like the visual of the twister coming down and the storm just ripping away all of the damage. I think it looks good, and I like the idea of it. But at the same time, it's such a safe ending. Like, there's no damage to be cleaned up. There's no mess. Everybody just goes back to their regular life as though nothing has happened. And that is so pat and boring, you know, I ended the film and just thought to myself, wow, yep, that could not be a safer, cleaner message for children. Yeah. Deeply disappointing. It's deeply <laughs> disappointing. And it's, again, this is why I was so surprised when you said that Ray Bradbury wrote the film. And I get that you have to fit in with the conventions of the studio. Like, that's mm-hmm. just part of the deal. But um, it's interesting to see how much Disney still does such safe work, but it's amazing to see how much has changed Yeah, since. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. They're far more willing to be dark and be unsettling and not have everything just be pat and clean and And they're much more confident with ambiguity than they were and i mean this is 83 this is this movie and i are literally the same age actually down to the month young (laughs) but down to the month also this movie came out in april does anybody else find that odd as opposed to october well, it's literally, they talk constantly about how it's October. <laughs> it's like the Octoberist October to ever October. Octobery, Octobery. What's October to a boy? Oh, October is the most important month to a boy. We're March. releasing this film in April. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shall we talk about some YA bingo? We shall. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay. Shall I start us off? YA bingo. Yep, start us off. Okay. So I have Supernatural Elements. No. I know, right? <laughs> Shocking. Oh, what have I got? Growing Apart. Mm-hmm. And Musicality, but it's a... I mean, no, I was a totally going to do a Musicality for the book. So okay. I buy it. It was on my list. Okay. Okay, I'm going to do Absentee Adults. Okay, explain. Because Charles, well, Charles is present, but like the legacy of Jim's absent dad and the legacy of Charles' previous absence right. informs both book and film. Got it. Okay. Uh, mediocre white boys. I was going to say, me. I know you want to put that in there, but <laughs> we've already discussed this. That is not allowable in this case. Gaslighting. Okay, explain. Because the whole town thinks that this carnival is a normal carnival and like the whole scene with the police and trying to convince the police. And that whole thing is why it's a relief when Charles actually does believe the boys. Yeah. Did you find it interesting that there's no authoritative presence in the film? Like the police are never called. That sequence never happens. Oh, you're right. It doesn't happen in the film. 
to me, that was one of the, again, I mean, we trash talk the film a little bit, but I thought that that was one of the smart things that the film does mm-hmm. is that it makes the small town feel almost lawless and easy pickings for this carnival. Well, and it very much is, I mean, it's styled to look like very sort of wild westy you know what i mean like the Mm -hmm. buildings look like storefront like they yeah it looks like you could turn your head just the right angle while watching the film and see the like slats in behind you know what i mean oh that's what i was talking about with this idea of artifice but it also made me it sort of evoked a wild west like yes kind of ghost town to me as well yes yes that's very astute so credit to you and devin i like it when you call me astute So yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that I didn't even notice that the police scene didn't happen because I found it so interesting in the book. As you know, I tend to be really interested by scenes where the figures of authority get sort of shown to be fools. Yes. Which is common in YA. This is not untrue. No. (laughs) All right. I think that's it for me. I think that's it too. Okay. Okay. Um, So... If you want to tell us how ignorant we sounded about Ray Bradbury's body of work today, <laughs> you can do that. Find us on the Twitters at hashtag HKHSPod. If you want to talk to me, reprimand me personally, uh, you can find me at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where can they find you? I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter B. And if you have something longer, I don't want to read something wicked fan fiction, but we love your letters and we love hearing from you any kind of feedback about the show. Mm-hmm. If you've got something a little bit longer, you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. Yeah, if you've got maybe a recommendation of a book that evokes the feel of this, but maybe is more successful, that could be fun. If you have a theory as to why R.L. Stein thinks this is the scariest book ever written, please share it. Yeah. And next week, we are going to torture Joe. And I don't feel like we do that enough on this show, so I'm really excited. (laughs) We are both reading, looking for Alaska, and if I'm not mistaken, Joe, we're watching the entire limited run series, yes? We are, yeah. So it's coming to Hulu, and we are going to binge marathon that. So (laughs) keep an eye out for looking for Alaska. I have no idea when I'm going to binge marathon it. I guess I'm not sleeping next week. Uh, I mean, this is the price you pay for John Green fandom. It's true. I do want to see the whole thing. And it's probably best that I binge watch it because otherwise it's going to be yet another show that I've watched the first two episodes of. This is true. And it's not like you've got Nancy Drew to distract you because no. 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 Okay. The plus side is the reviews that I've seen from uh, critics who have had the chance to see it before it actually drops is that it's good. Looking for Alaska? Yeah. Oh, good. You know, it's interesting. We'll have a lot to say. I think you were alluding to a conversation about Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Were you not for this yes. episode? Yes. So, Cody, we will finally address your question regarding Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Yeah, I think we're going to have a lot to say and uh, a lot to fairly critique John Green for. So Okay, here we we'll go. S- <laughs> we'll see you all next week. Uh, until then, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.